In July of 1912, Times Square echoed with gunfire. Bookie Herman Rosenthal was gunned down publicly after threatening to unveil a web of police corruption. The murder was pinned on his former friend, New York police officer Lieutenant Charles Becker, and details were printed in every newspaper in America about the so-called trial of the century, but certainly not all the details. Newsboys turned gangsters held the secrets of the Kings of New York. We've made it to chapter four. Welcome back. Hi, Annie. How's it going? Hi, it's going. September was busy. Yeah. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary to you. Woo! We happen to both have anniversaries four days apart. It's awesome. Yes. This is why we get along. Yours was in what year? 2012. So we're at 11 Mine years. was 2012. We were yeah. we were both 11 years. There you Happy go. Happy 11 years to you. Happy 11 years to you as well. And thank you to our <laughs> wonderful life partners who put up with us and help us with research and listen to every single episode of our podcasts that we put out because they love us and not because they can't say no. And thank you to them for allowing us to go to New York just about every year for you, maybe twice a year. And uh, listen, and for- our 10 year anniversary last year, we went between wrestling shows we were in archives looking stuff up for this podcast so for those of you wondering what do you do for your 10 year wedding anniversary wrestling and archives apparently is uh is the way to keep a marriage fresh and exciting And on my end as well I have to give a shout out for the best birthday present ever which only took me nine months to start utilizing the awesome intro that we now have that Matt got a recording for with Annie's help that I didn't know anything about. So thank you for that. The voice actor is a Toronto-based voice actor named Mark Porter. You look him up. He's phenomenal. Any voice acting needs, any awesome commercial or any other voiceover work, hit him up because that for me is a super badass intro. So yeah, so thanks for that. That's going to be at the beginning of every one of our episodes now. And then I have an apology first to Annie and then to everybody else. I had some issue with Audacity with the last episode, even though I had edited everything with audio break. For some reason, Annie's audio got bumped by a couple of seconds or a couple of beats. And so it sounds like we're talking over each other, but that was not the intention. So hopefully with this episode, I'll fix that better, gooder. Another exciting thing is that we are on all the podcast platforms we're on spotify apple iHeartRadio. there are more that i'm missing but keep on listening keep on subscribing and we will get the algorithm to find us and that will be really exciting yeah 
you can go to kingsofnewyorkpodcast.com, which will just take you to the main podcast page. You can listen right on there, or there is an option to see like where you can listen on. Go from there. Download it on your favorite podcast app, and please listen, and we'll be very happy to have you. We were talking about last little bit of housekeeping. We're talking about maybe some super secret special episodes coming up. A little short, guys that we will announce later keep an eye on our socials on instagram and stuff like that because clearly you can't get enough of us talking about moida <laughs> exactly maybe we have to start uh no i don't think i think we'll lose listeners if we start using access <laughs> instead of true crime we'll end what up are you talking about we'll what are you talking about <laughs> Use guys. Use guys. Hey, you skittery. <laughs> Speaking of the film that brought us together, Newsies, an actor from that film, Michael Gorgian, just put out a phenomenal film called The Mirakatsi. It's about the Armenian genocide and um, Armenia in the 1940s. It is a beautiful film, so that we've heard. Unfortunately, it's not here in Canada yet. Or in Austin, Texas. Hopefully soon. As a like support people that have inspired us to create this podcast. If it's playing in your city, check it out because every ticket sale counts. And, you know, this is a film that we want to do well. I feel like we need to segue into what we're going to say next. Speaking of characters. Back to our episode number four. The alleged plot. We are going to talk about the murder plot itself now that we've met the suspect and the victim. And it's time to meet the supporting cast of characters, which is massive. We're going to try to keep that organized. We're going to split it up across several episodes. But we're going to talk about what officially happened versus what allegedly happened versus what we think happened we're going to talk about the the people that were all involved that fateful night some of whom would later go on to face the death penalty themselves meanwhile others that i personally think certainly deserved it more would get away scot-free and then eventually even make a movie about it those guys. Those guys. Use guys. guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, the official story changed details as Becker's trial progressed. Evidence that was new was brought up. Key witnesses changed their statements. Others were removed from taking the stand by other means. But overall, the gist of the plot, at least according to publicly disclosed at the time, was as follows. After accusing Becker of misconduct and unfair treatment, Rosenthal was a marked man. According to several sources, including our favorite author Jonathan Root, who wrote The Life and Bad Times of Charlie Becker, Rosenthal had to go before 8 a.m. on Tuesday, July 16th. He had a meeting with the grand jury at 8 a.m. That was scheduled. He finally got 
enough attention to the story by publishing the, his affidavits in the newspapers and having that actually out there that not only was the commissioner willing to talk to him and he had met with the commissioner the day before, the grand jury wanted to see him to talk about these allegations about police corruption, about Becker, and about everybody else that was involved in, one, harassing Rosenthal, but two, really to shine a light on the system. What Jonathan Root mentions, and it comes up during the uh, Becker's trial, was that whether it was on the street, in the bar, or at his own home, Rosenthal was going to die that night. His wife, Lillian, had warned Herman that she had a bad feeling. They had packed their bags, so they had suitcases ready to go. So Rosenthal had some sort of expectation. Yeah, he certainly wasn't expecting to get shot, as one would, or would not, I suppose. Mm. Whether Rosenthal was going to go away quietly, Rothstein had offered him $500 to lay low for a bit and stop talking about this whole situation until everything blew over. There is a number that comes up, and Andy Logan mentions it in her work uh, from 1970 called Against the Evidence. It's a phenomenal book, and so far of all of the stuff that we've read, is the most passionate about the whole thing. And she mentions that there is an, uh, the number of $15,000 that was allegedly promised or expected to change hands, that that's the money that Rosenthal allegedly was going to receive for leaving. That's the equivalent of $484,000 today. It's a big chunk of change to just go away for a little bit, get out of town for a bit, and stop talking, right? Was he expecting that his friends were going to help him out like they always did? Who was he going to lean on? Jack Sullivan? Tim Sullivan? Bridgie Weber, if they were on good terms at the time? Now, mind you, he and Bridgie were constantly putting hits on each other. George Cohen, the Cosadines, Rothstein. He definitely had an expectation in that he felt really comfortable to step out into the street when he was called by a stranger. So why did he feel so comfortable? Was there something planned? Was there something that was supposed to happen rather than a shooting? Right. And a lot of the newspaper reporting at the time suggested that he was just that cocky that i mean we get we get everything from him being kind of almost an innocent victim and it's a it's a gang war to he was expecting something that he was expecting a payout and that's why he came out um that there was something more elaborate going on to the whole plot but the short of it is if he knew he was a marked man if his wife had warned him why do that right um he was sitting in the at the back of the restaurant kind of like surrounding himself with people the entire night so if somebody and says being very flamboyant yeah i mean it it really does seem that like there's no amount of 
confidence in the world in being having personal protection from the local politicians i don't think there's any amount of confidence in the world that would make it so that you sit there and brag about it so much and not assume that there's going to be repercussions considering he literally blew up his you know the entire balance of the system for him to not expect pushback or any sort of uh, retaliation is just dumb i don't know how else to put it well you know beansy wasn't too smart of a guy yeah, I don't know. Like, I, smart enough to manage to run some gambling operation and True. get away with it for for a bit. The last raid that he faced was that raid in April that we talked about in our episode about Rosenthal, and that was the one that Becker essentially staged so that he could get uh, the commissioner kind of off his back and to stop asking questions as to why Rosenthal's establishment was the only one that hasn't been raided yet. And he had not been able to reopen since. So we do know that Rosenthal got raided in April. Becker's men smashed up all of his tables, all of his gambling equipment. And then there was a police officer living in the house to make sure that the the operation didn't start up again. This was allegedly, according to the logic of the time this is what really upset rosenthal that like this lack of privacy this you know persecution this uh you know preference not preferential treatment the opposite of preferential treatment that he was being (laughs) singled out when everybody else that he knew was getting away with the same thing if not worse i took up living in his house and uh commenting on his every move and nobody else did Right. So that's that was kind of like what spurred him to to really push this story and, and put out his affidavits. Since that raid in April, Becker's relationship obviously soured with Rosenthal enough that obviously Rosenthal was upset and, and complaining to everybody that would listen to him about Becker personally. And then Becker is upset with him enough, with is upset with Rosenthal enough to reach out to Jack Rose, his collector, and start talking about that Rosenthal needed to die. I don't know what happened there. Becker recognized that he couldn't kill Rosenthal himself. And so he needed to make sure that his name would be clean, but that the job was still done to his satisfaction. At least that's what the story is. Um, that's yeah. being that's being narrated by certain people. According to Jack Rose, Becker had approached him weeks prior to get him to take care of things, and he failed to deliver, which angered Becker. It wasn't getting done fast enough, and that Becker said that he would have done it himself. He would have stabbed him, dynamited him, shot him, just to get it all done. And at this point... Rose brought in Jack Zelig, the leader of the Lennox gang. Zelig was a Lower East Side tough with an absolute cruel streak. He took over for uh, Monk Eastman, who was 
a very prominent gangster leader, saloon operator. We've brought him up in a previous episode. He was the, I would say that Monkey Smith was the king of the Bowery in the underworld when uh, Tim Sullivan was, was that as like the face of the Bowery. And so uh, Zelig took over for Monkey Smith. He inherited the the crime syndicate really that was uh the jewish gangs in the lower east side and he was a young guy and was able to control them they were terrified of him in a way well um, well this, started young i believe like yeah. he got his start at like six years old and he was starting as a pickpocket but he yep. was like known to be a violent six-year-old yeah he he didn't get better with age from the biography called The Starker by uh, Rose Keefe. He had this persona that I think we've brought up before about Becker, that there was this like duality to him, that he was like terrifying and absolutely cruel. And you did not want to cross him if you were at all in his bad books. But then he was a family man. And he had a son and he loved his wife and he, he was a very fashionable guy. He really wanted to be presentable. He did not want to be associated with kind of like the, the lower gritty gangsters, pickpockets, all of that. He was definitely like the kind of like a, a new type of, of gangster. You start seeing more and more of that kind of personality. But yeah, he was terrifying. Yeah. And he was very proud of that. And I would have loved to know what he could have achieved um <laughs> Had unfortunately he... yeah unfortunately we, he wouldn't get that chance we'll we'll explain later and he will probably get his own episode oh uh, yeah 100 percent. he was just really cool I, I mean cool is probably not the best way to describe him but he was of the belief and persuasion that the people that answered to him were not just jewish uh, he was open to hiring Italian gangsters. Um, this was at a time when things were very kept very separate. So the fact that he was willing to hire anybody because they were good at what they did, regardless of what their background and beliefs were, um, you know, really spoke to his open-mindedness, despite, you know, also being a terrifying tyrant in, you know, in the Lower East Side. Who were the men in his crew? So the four that got involved in this shooting specifically, asterisk, <laughs> the names that we have are uh, Whitey Lewis, Jip the Blood, Dago Frank, and Lefty Lewis. The real names, according to the trial, the court records, and I'm actually going to pull out my big book. Jip the Blood was actually Harry Horowitz. And um, while the name sounds terrifying, the the term the blood actually suggests that he was a fashionable guy. It's like slang of the time. So to us, it sounds terrifying. He was a little bit darker skinned, hence the Jip or Gypsy moniker, which is yes. super not PC anymore. Not you see anymore, they would be, but yeah, that's where his name comes from. But like, obviously, now to us, he sounds like super fascinating. Harry Horowitz, also incredibly handsome guy, and 
knew it and used it to his advantage. We have Lefty Lewis, known as Lewis, real name Lewis Rosenbark, with more aliases than there is enough room on a page. There's Frank Sirafici, alias Dago Frank, also a slur that we no longer use, but at the time was pretty common to refer to Italians. And he was the Italian of the group. And uh, Whitey Lewis, who is incorrectly identified in the court records as Frank Muller, but his real name is Jacob Seiden Schneier. And I apologize if I mispronounced that. So those are the, the, the core four. They were promised or they were contracted for $1,000 that they would split four ways to carry out the deed of killing Rosenthal. And the money was to be split, paid out after he was dead. Spoiler alert. All of them were executed in April of 1914. During the trial hearings, it was discovered that there was an earlier attempt on Rosenthal's life. A few weeks prior, Rosenthal was dining at the Garden Restaurant with none other than his best friend, Jack Sullivan. The gunmen were poised to take him out. But at the last moment, they backed off, and the reason was allegedly because they saw a member of the Burns Detective Agency lurking nearby, and they didn't want to, uh, they didn't want to have trouble with the PI. Um, or it could have been that Jack Sullivan was there. Jack Sullivan was a man that was very good at negotiating, who worked with everyone, and yet maintained very loyal relationships with everyone if you want to talk about brotherhood jack was that kind of man who established this brotherly relationship with a lot of these other men so the burns agency the burns agency would actually be hired by a group of wealthy new yorkers to carry out their own private investigations into the case while becker was on trial yeah I have a quick interjection or question. Is the Burns Agency run by the same, what is it, the same cop who was a former lieutenant? Exactly. That was burned by um, by Waldo? Uh, and or, Rosenthal. And Rosenthal. We talked about the 1909 allegations in our previous episode that, uh, so after the Lexo committee, that there was an attempt to eradicate the system in 1909. And the person that brought attention to it at the time was, again, Rosenthal. He was the one that was already kind of making noise. Basically, there was a bunch of police reform that happened after this, this case, so that once Rosenthal started talking about things again in 1912, that's when things kind of got blown out of proportion and Becker was thrown under the bus. In 1909, that's right. They basically sacrificed the career of very prominent lieutenant, ruined his career, and he went on to found the Burns Agency so that he could offer his investigative services outside of the realm of the official police department because he was so disillusioned by it. Huh. That's exactly what happened. 
Okay. So to have them come in to investigate <laughs> this case is wild. The reason I hesitate to say that we know this or like to like really state that this is a fact. And in this this man will get his own episode, uh, if not next month, then the month after. But a lot of the information that we get is from Jack Rose. A lot of the a lot of testimony. A lot of the testimony comes from Jack Rose. Uh, Jack Rose was extremely wily. Not to be trusted. Absolutely not to be trusted. He was offered a plea deal that if he testified against Becker, that he basically got to walk away free without any repercussions. Even though the more you kind of read in between the lines, you realize that Jack Rose had more of a hand in Rosenthal's murder than Becker ever could have. He is not a good person, <laughs> but he claimed, and this is kind of to, to show that this was building up for a very long time, that after this raid in April, Becker started just getting more and more upset with Rosenthal for this, that, and the other thing. And so they started meeting, Becker and Jack Rose started meeting at the Lafayette Baths. This was a public bathhouse because at the time, uh, indoor plumbing wasn't necessarily uh, widespread. So you would have these bathhouses for, you know, a particular block in the city that everybody in the community could go use, clean up and, you know, hang out with your friends. So the Lafayette baths are like explicitly mentioned by their full name throughout Jack Rose's testimony. And he talks about how... This is where he and Becker would meet, and Becker would progressively get more and more upset that Rosenthal was still alive. I think there was, they, they met at least three times, if not more, but sometimes they would meet with just Jack Rose. Sometimes it would be with other people from the Lennox gang or from uh, Bridgie Weber's circle of friends. But every time it's referred to, it's specifically like the full name, the Lafayette Baths. Which you'd think, like, after a while, they would just say, oh, just the bathhouse. It always stuck out to me as a sore thumb, so I looked it up, and um, the, the Lafayette Bath was, uh, like, a pretty large establishment in the Lower East Side. Like, not too far from the Tenderloin, not too far from where, like, the shooting took place. It was in Tim Sullivan's territory. His photo was in the building by the front, like, as you walk in, obviously, to show that so it was Sullivan's patronage. According to an article, I believe it's from 1916, there was a raid at the Lafayette Baths for immoral and indecent conduct. So not only could you have a bath in there and like in, enjoy an afternoon of spending time and relaxing, but they would also have rooms that you could rent out by the hour. You could have a nap. You could stay the night if you didn't have a safe place to go. It turned out that the Lafayette Baths specifically were a hotbed of homosexual activity, that it was a safe space for men to explore relationships with other men in a time that that was certainly not uh, legal or allowed or encouraged or even acknowledged. This right in 1916, there was at least a dozen people arrested and their names were published in the newspaper and it was a whole ugly thing. So what are the chances that the fact that Rose is specifically name dropping, that this is where they've been meeting, 
and this place is what it's called. And by the way, it's this place that we met at as a way of discrediting Becker, hinting that he's this immoral person to be hanging out in this place. Because I would imagine if this was like a really well-known area and like a really well-known building that people at the time might know, you know, rumors spread, right? People will kind of know the ins and outs of things, especially if they're local, that like, yeah, this is a place where where guys hang out, if you know what I mean, right? And us reading the testimony 110 years later, we wouldn't know. Yeah, great. They went to bathhouse a bunch of times. They were very clean until you start reading into more of the history. So was this a way of Jack? Jack Rose being more of a he's like yeah I was also there but like I was there for but a reason Becker like, was there Becker, I mean, he hangs out there oh I don't know about that guy right multiple meetings happen there and then another one that we will definitely get into later because we whether it happened or it didn't was in Harlem the so-called Harlem conference and whether it happened or not definitely changed the tide of the whole case against becker um during the retrials do you want me to just do a quick run through yeah okay is it strange i can do this off the top of my head is it that strange oh dear lord eh, i guess not. what the newspapers tell us whitey lewis lefty louie jip the blood and dago frank were hanging out at bridgie weber's saloon it was a couple blocks away from the metropole they were waiting to get word about where they were going to go to shoot Rosenthal because they didn't know where he was. Bridgie Weber had gone to the Metropole because this was Rosenthal's favorite place to hang out. He had gone to the Metropole. He had said hello and left. We know this from our uh, Rosenthal episode. Bridgie Weber then came back to his own saloon and gave the go ahead to the four shooters. Everybody took off. They got into the gray pouring Packard and drove over to the Metropole, parked across the street, got out. Somebody, and and this is the one mysterious person that we really don't know who it was. Somebody goes in and says to Rosenthal, hey, there's somebody who wants to talk to you outside. Rosenthal, without hesitation, collects his things, steps out before he's even aware of what's going on. He gets shot at. Uh, five shots ring out. Two hit him as he's so the first hits him as he's going down. The second one kind of hits him in the top of the head. There's some speculation that I would say incorrect information that somebody took him out executioner style because of the the way that the bullet holes line up. It was that he got the second shot went in as he was falling down. In the car with the four shooters, and this is basically a clown car situation at this point with how many people are there, are also Jack Rose, a man named Harry Vallon, and a man named Sam Sheps. Sam Sheps was the paymaster. That was the person that was holding the $1,000 to pay the shooters. And then we also have the driver, Louis Libby. No, I apologize. William Shapiro. The car was owned by Louis Libby. William Shapiro sees this go down because clearly he didn't guess as to why seven men are in his car how they fit in there i don't know but he's sitting at the wheel he sees the the shooting go down the men run back into the car somebody 
presses a gun to the back of his head and says, drive. He takes off. Somebody jumps onto the footboards of the car. We get this whole cinematic sequence of this car driving off with gangsters hanging off the side. This is um, some speculation out there that this is the first time a vehicle was used in a shooting. So this is like our first drive-by. The driver claims that he specific he made a point of driving too fast in hopes that uh, the, the, this car would get pulled over by the police for speeding, and then he could give up all of these criminals that he's harboring in his vehicle. That's about it. That's the alleged story. There is a hint that uh, the car... So the car does go back to the garage that it was from. Uh, there's a whole kerfuffle about even identifying the license plate and tracking it down. It would later turn out that this was a car that Jack Rose really liked to rent out because uh, when he wanted to go on for a night on the town or, you know, run some errands, I suppose, like shooting somebody in the face. So they got tied back to him. But apparently they did make one stop on the way to the garage. It was at the home or at the building of, coincidentally, somebody that worked for Commissioner Waldo. Dun, dun, dun. We don't know where the shooters went after, but this is the official story. Seven people were involved, but the people doing the shooting were the Lennox gang, were these four guys. It was pinned on them, and it was really treated as, well, this is a gang gangland war situation all of these people are here obviously they must have done it but lo and behold becker was the one that organized all of it because he was tied to each and every single one of them whether or not that was true we believe that it was not organized by becker another interesting thing is that according to Harry Horowitz and and Lefty Louie, or Jip the Blood and Lefty Louie, both of them deny that Dago Frank was even there. Yeah. Frank himself said that his mother was sick. His alibi was that his mother was sick, and he was with his mother, and even his mother could testify that, and even his sister could testify that. And since we did mention that they do get executed in November of 1914, they all went to the chair claiming their own innocence, but that they were that they were taking the fall. Frank's mom and sister would come visit him constantly when he was at Sing Sing and bring him food and everything. I think there's even a photo, I think, of his sister and Harry's wife carrying bags of food to Sing Sing. Which is wild that this would go go down. And as he's walking to the chair, he he says, you know, take care of my mother kind of thing. Which you have to wonder, like I've I've wondered this, that did he take the money and did he take the fall so that his family would be taken care of? Harry Horowitz had a son. He had a, a one-year-old at the time, which I think I've found some descendants from since. The other guys too, they they were a lot more stoic about it but none of them agreed to confess prior to their execution and um the the th thing that i wanted to bring up that i'll edit my awkward jar jaggedness here 
So this was a, the there was a really quick shift from this is a gangland gangland war to is this specifically a Jewish issue? Mm. Which very quickly then their their names are actually switched to using the nicknames in news in newspapers because originally it was their their real names were being published and there was actually a concerted effort on the part of the community of of elders to get that changed because there was the question of how is this painting the entire community if we have these notorious criminals that are being presented in the media so widely there is even um a committee i believe that was formed to work on the public image i would just imagine all these jewish names in print and imagine the anti-semitism going around in the public eye absolutely absolutely well and then there's the question of did the horowitz and the rosenberg families even know what their sons were up to apparently they were shocked to find out that they were involved mr uh, rosenberg he didn't know that his son was doing any of this that uh it was like such a shock that his son was the bad apple harry horowitz's dad was a member of the local synagogue he claimed that his son was an excellent student how could he be a criminal he absolutely is not that that type of boy right uptown there was a communal body formed called the kahila they set up the borough of social morals to investigate their own community to infiltrate jewish criminals and the the spaces they were in so there's such a ripple effect in this whole case that we don't even fully see until much later right not only is somebody dead and another person falsely accused we've got four other people and it took them the trials took all of a week and an hour and a half to condemn them Mm. the jury didn't hesitate to say yep they must have done it even the guy that wasn't even there sure he did it too even the guy who was visiting his sick mother exactly and so then we have this heavy investigation into the police department. We have an investigation into, we have this Bureau of Social Morals investigating Jewish businesses and people. They try to infiltrate gambling activity, deal with young Jewish women who often were prostitutes in uh, downtown streets. Unhealthy lifestyles, as they said. It only made the gamblers become smarter and be more sneaky. So then we get things like, Arnold Rothstein inventing the floating casino that every night it was in a different place. You could never track it down unless you were personally invited. And with the four shooters, there was an attempt to have the trial at the same time as Becker. And for some reason, there was the judge refused, and there was no effort made on the commissioner's part to change that, because had Becker been tried at the same time, he would have been perceived differently. I wonder if, if that were the case, that the shooters would have looked at him once and said, like, we don't even know the guy, like, he's part of this. Right. Like, he, he never asked us to do anything. So maybe that's why they, they kept it separate. But two of them are buried in Popper's grave. I believe Frank is buried in a Catholic cemetery. And I don't actually know, I don't think we have a record for, for the fourth. But it kind of sucks 
to put it really simply, that, yeah, they were criminals. But they weren't guilty of this. Yeah. They really took the fall. They might have done some bad things. But yeah. They definitely took the fall for something yeah. that they did not do. Yeah, I think as much as we, we really want this whole podcast to prove Becker's innocence, I think this is a little aside that I think also has value. These guys, they were young enough and ambitious enough to want to do their job well and get paid for it. But we have to ask the question, what was their actual job? Well, that's it, right? I don't think that they expected to be in prison for very long. This is because Jack Zellig had letters from all four of them that sounded very optimistic. Jack Zellig was kind of the linchpin here. He supposedly knew a lot more about the whole organization, about the whole plot than um, anybody else. And really what confirms this is the fact that he got shot two days before he was supposed to testify during Becker's trial. And it wasn't even, it wasn't even a good shooting, if you mm. can put it that way right he got mugged on a trolley by somebody that was just some two-bit pickpocket that claimed the zelig owed him money and that's why he shot him had zelig taken the stand if things would have gone differently exactly what we do know is that zelig had letters in his pockets so when the, the autopsy was happening these letters were public knowledge that he was carrying these on him one said, stop worrying about us as we have everything we wish for. We're here on a short vacation and to have a good rest. So cheer up and be good. And this is written to him from the tombs. There is another uh, letter from Harry Horowitz where he basically updates Zelig on how they're doing, how Louis is doing, how Whitey's doing, and Frank, and how their wives are okay and everything's looking fine everybody's you know getting fed in there don't worry about us everything's gonna be good he even says did you see that piece about louis in today's journal we laughed ourselves sick over it you remember that fellow who said he was stuck up last week on second avenue well he's up here with us too and we kicked the life out of him but all of these people are plants yeah they're like testifying against one another take care of yourself and you're you're one who can do that Whitey and Frank will send you a note of their own. So they they didn't expect to stay in jail, much less to be executed or to be pinned with this whole thing, right? Because Zelig knew something that would have gotten them out immediately. But that information, we will never know. He took it to the grave. Yeah. At most, we have a testimony from... Louis, Frank, and Jacob, and Harry speaking up for themselves. But this is after Zelig is dead and can no longer help them. Yeah. That's a little bit of a brief on the Lennox gang. So we met a whole bunch of people today. So in addition to uh, Whitey Louie, Louis Rosenberg, Frank Serafici, because we're not going to use slurs here, and Harry Horowitz, The Blood. Um, we met Jack Zelig. Well, we talked about Jack Rose a little bit. Sam Sheps, the paymaster. 
and Harry Valland, who is going to remain a mysterious figure with no backstory and no information whatsoever until hopefully a later episode, because really he is a shadow person that um, just happens to be in all of these places. And the driver who just was not the Sparks person. <laughs> the thing that I do want to bring up about specifically Whitey Lewis uh, Whitey Lewis is the person that helped us identify that photo that we posted on Instagram a couple months ago, uh, and by a couple months ago, I think a year ago, um, where we asked our listeners the question of whether the photo that we have of this child from 1892 is the same as um, Harmon Rosenthal. And the reason why I became suspicious that maybe this is this group picture is actually based on a photo of real people is because there is a kid on the far left and we'll post this picture as well the photo is captioned or the engraving is captioned with all of the nicknames of the kids in the image and the kid on the far left is captioned as whitey and if you look at his face and you compare it to photos of Whitey Lewis from the trial uh, proceedings, I have no doubt that it's the same person. Um, they have a very distinct kind of cross-eyed situation and a very distinct nose shape that if the engraving was just like a random sketch of like some street urchins that somebody made up, it's way too close to call um for it to just be a made-up face so that puts uh our friend whitey lewis who does the shooting and uh herman rosenthal who gets shot in the same room as kids in 1892 yes yes uh, yeah okay. and we'll talk more about all of them separately in another episode and in the meantime i think it's time to sign off so, if any, you want to do the otters? Please follow us on Instagram. Follow us on all of the streaming podcasts. Uh, you can find us at uh, kingsofnewyorkpodcast.com. And stay tuned for special content, which will likely be on our patreon yeah because we're gonna try to do that we're gonna try to do a super special secret uh halloween episode because of course there's gonna be spooky stories uh when a murderer is involved yes and we have encountered some uh very i wouldn't say spooky things but we have been visited by what we believe have been spirits and we yeah. will tell graveyard in tales our next in between episode uh we will be back on november 1st with more about this story uh we're gonna dive into a different character who we keep talking about and maybe it's just time to go right in but yeah they're not spooky stories they're we've been encouraged to yes. tell the story that's that's how i look at it so We'll we'll post that in a couple of weeks. Um, thank you, Annie, for doing this with me.
And thank you for bringing me into this journey and inviting me in and taking a chance on someone who didn't know anything about this story and then See, was the problem immediately intrigued. Was that you let me rant at you for long enough that <laughs> I haven't stopped. So, yeah. <laughs> and well, I appreciate you, you also, for it. You also invited me to a lot of stories and allowed me to write and yes, transcribe that is true. some of and them. And thank you for doing all that. And, 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 we'll and allowed it, me to we'll put a voice them to it. Voice until, until such a time that we've told the story out of things that you, the listeners, can help us out with, other than subscribing and checking out the Patreon once we set that up. Send us a note. Send us any questions that you have. Or again, if you know any of these people, if you are related to any of these people, hot dang, do we want to talk to you? Yes. We want to respect your ancestry. We know that sometimes finding uh, finding things out about certain ancestors or believing certain things that were published as fact about your ancestors can be really troubling. We do want to yep. clear. And if you don't like names. something that we're saying, or if you have questions about something that we're saying, or if there's family lore that has been believed for generations and you hear us talking about something else entirely, um, reach out. We'd love to talk to you and kind of clear the air, or maybe we know something or you know something that we don't, or we know something that you don't. Always happy to help and always happy to chat. And if anybody knows or is somebody that specializes in analyzing handwriting, whether forensic or otherwise, we would love to talk to you because we have, we do have a lot of original documents from this case that we've been very fortunate to have access to. A lot of them are in the public domain and with, within public access. So that was Ancestry uh, is phenomenal. But we have had sources that have also granted us access to documents that are privately owned, which is phenomenal. And we have some questions specifically related to identifying, identifying some handwriting. So if you know how to do that, please reach out because that would give us a gigantic puzzle piece that we are still trying to wedge into the story otherwise. 